Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you remain standing and take your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5 as we continue through this section. James chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 13 to 18, so if you'll follow along as I read now, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Our text for this morning is James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, the last, uh, last few verses in this section that we began two weeks ago that runs from chapter 13 through verse 18. And as you'll remember, the theme of this section is the place and the power of prayer in life's, all of life's experiences. And certainly that the Bible teaches us to pray continually and faithfully and at all times, but in these verses... James addresses three particular occasions that call for prayer. In verse 13, James dealt with two of those occasions, suffering and cheerfulness. Last week in verses 14 and 15, James addressed the third occasion that calls for prayer, times of sickness. And we learned that when a believer is seriously ill, and this is in the specific instance when when a believer is seriously ill, He or she is directed to call for the elders from their local church to come to their home, perhaps to their bedside or perhaps even a hospital room for special prayer. And once they've received the call, the elders have a special responsibility to respond to this request. And they're commanded here to do two things. James says in verse 14, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And of course, praying over him uh, really gives the, 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 the picture and suggests that the person is bedridden and they're standing around the bedside perhaps with you know, hands stretched out or perhaps laying hands on the sick person. So they're to pray over him and then anointing him with oil, which, as we learned, is a physical action with symbolic 
significance. The anointing with oil is, there's nothing magical about the oil. The anointing with oil is the consecrating or setting apart of this person for God's special attention and care. But the primary emphasis and the greatest priority is on praying. And these things are to be done in the name of the Lord. And James said in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith is, is offered for healing and the confidence that God will answer that prayer when it's according to his will to do so. And when it is according to his will, we're told the Lord will raise him up, the, meaning the sick person will be healed, raised up from his sick bed. And so it's not the oil, it's not the elders, it's not the prayer, but it is the Lord himself who does the healing. It is he who raises up. And then the last part of verse 15, James added this. Look at verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James says if, and that's important. Because all too often we are prone to assume that sin is the cause of someone's sickness and suffering. Well, it certainly can be. I mean, physical illness may be a direct result of someone's sin. In addition to that, the Bible also teaches that some sickness, even death, may come to believers as a result of God's fatherly discipline because they are persisting to live in sin. But this isn't always the case. And the fact is, most human sickness, while not outside of God's divine will, is simply the result of living in a broken world where everything has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And so James says, if he has committed sin. In other words, the possibility should always be considered. So when sickness comes, the ill believer should examine himself before the Lord to determine if, if sin might be the cause of his or her illness. And if sin is present, I mean, if they recognize sin, if the Lord shows them that, yes, this is due to your sin, then they're to confess that to the Lord who is gracious and merciful and ready and willing to forgive. And now as we come to verse 16, James concludes his specific discussion about prayer for healing. But because sin can cause some illnesses, and since physical healing through prayer is James' primary concern, he also now urges confession, confession of sins. Why? Well, because both confession of sins, because sin can sometimes be responsible for illness, and prayer are necessary so that the healing of physical illnesses in the body of Christ can take place. And so in verses 16 to 18, James encourages believers to confess their sins to one another and to pray for one another. And then he uses the prophet Elijah's intercession for rain as an example of fervent and effective prayer. So let's look now at verse 16, where James instructs us with regard to confession of sin and prayer. Notice verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now this verse is spoken in the context of James' instruction about physical healing. And the word therefore shows that, that this is a conclusion. And so after acknowledging that sin could result in physical sickness, James draws the conclusion, therefore, or in light of this truth, confess your sins. 
And this is addressed to all believers. All believers should regularly confess their sins and implicitly turn from their sins in repentance. And so first of all, we see there's a need for confession of sins. And of course, all sin is to be confessed. But James is thinking here especially of those sins that may be the cause of sickness and hindering physical healing. These are to be confessed. And the word translated confess means means to say the same thing or to admit or to acknowledge. And it suggests that in confessing, we must identify the sin by its true name and call it what it is. It speaks of an open and full acknowledgement of personal guilt. In other words, James is saying we must acknowledge and repent of specific sins, not just, you know, some general confession of a personal sinfulness like, oh, you know what, I've sinned. No, this says confess your sins. The definite sinful acts which you are guilty It's a lot easier to say, well, I've sinned. It's much easier to say that than to say, yes, I've committed adultery, or yes, I've committed fornication, or yes, I I am a chronic liar. James is calling for us to confess the definite sinful acts of which we are guilty. So the confession is to be concrete. It's not supposed to be vague and and nebulous. Confess your sins. And although the primary application of this verse is specifically confession of sin sin by those whose sin has resulted in physical sickness, this also has a much broader application. It has a much broader application to confession of sin in any of life's situations. Because confession of sin also affects our spiritual health and well-being and the spiritual health and well-being of the church as a whole. Well, why, why is confession so important? Well, because its purpose is, first of all, to put things right with God. And so when our sin in our lives doesn't break our relationship with God. It doesn't sever the relationship, but it most certainly breaks our fellowship and communion with him. The Lord said in Isaiah 59, but your iniquities or your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Sin breaks our fellowship and communion with God. Sin also hinders prayer. I mean, it's, it's possible to be a Christian, but to allow sins and, and distractions to crowd into our lives and to hinder our prayers. I mean, the psalmist said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And again, back in Isaiah 59, that, that, those two verses there says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin not only has an upward impact on our life because it breaks our fellowship and communion with God, hinders our prayers so that God won't even hear us, 
It also has an outward impact on the life of a believer because it hinders or, or causes a break in our interpersonal fellowship and relationships. And so this means confession not only involves God, but also the persons who have been injured by your sins. And that's why James says, confess your sins to who? One another. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said one of the main benefits of confession is that it brings healthy humiliation. Bonhoeffer said, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is as ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. And it's absolutely right. It's true. And as a result of that kind of confession, uh, there, it, that helps promote a poverty of spirit, which is acceptable to God. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And true confession of sin only comes from a broken and a contrite heart. And that's the case because it is excruciatingly painful and very humbling to acknowledge your sin. And that's why so many people uh, have so much unconfessed sin in their life. They're not, they're not about to confess their sin to God or to anybody else. But confession is a mark of repentance. It's a plea for forgiveness on the part of the sinner. And when the sinner confesses his sin and, and asks for and, and receives forgiveness, he experiences freedom from, from the burden of guilt and, and shame. And so James says, in light of the fact that unconfessed sin could result in physical sickness, confess your sins. And although confession to God is the primary and most necessary form of confession, James adds, James adds confess your sins to one another. And this is the only verse in the New Testament that explicitly commands believers to confess their sins to one another. Now, this command to confess your sins to one another is uh, so easy to misunderstand, and so it needs uh, some further comment because this verse has been greatly abused. For example, the Roman Catholic Church uses this verse as the basis of their doctrine of confessing your sin to a priest, which all Roman Catholics are required to do at least once a year. Well, the words of Martin Luther are the best answer to this. Luther said, a strange confessor, his name is one another. I mean, James uh, was not thinking of confession to a priest. I mean, quite obviously, there's a substantial difference between one another and a priest. Now, James is not ruling out the fact that members of the church should confide in the pastor and, and elders for counsel and prayer, but he is not suggesting we must confess our sin to a priest, not by any stretch of the imagination. This verse is not speaking about gathering in groups or, or holding a meeting in which believers tell one another about their sins. You know, they just basically let it all hang out as far as their sinful activities. 
mean, some people do this as a means of individual and group therapy. You know, they see it as an emotional catharsis or an emotional inner cleansing. But there is absolutely nothing in this command to suggest that James has in mind group therapy or some kind of an emotional catharsis. There is nothing in this command to suggest that James has in mind any kind of meetings where people confess any and every sin to each other. I mean, that kind of thing is not helpful and can actually be harmful. Because sometimes people indiscreetly share things in public that should never be shared. And for example, one pastor I read said that he once had a man in a Sunday school class share in front of the entire class with his wife present that he had lusted over another woman present there in the class. Well, James is not encouraging such a thing. I mean, that, that's not only just foolish. I mean, that kind of careless confession causes uh, much more harm uh, than it ever would good. And so what does confessing your sins to one another look like in practice? Well, Warren Wearsby wisely said that we must never confess sin beyond the circle of that sin's influence. In other words, the confession of sin should be as public as the sin. So the offender should confess the sin to the one offended, whether to a person or to God or to a group. We confess secret sins known only by God to God. Because like all sins, sins such as anger, envy, greed, jealousy, selfishness, pride, or lust offend him, even if they never lead to outward action. I mean, it's highly unlikely that we will accomplish anything constructive by telling someone, you know, I envied you or I lusted after you. I mean, we confess secret sins known only by God to God. And having said that, let me add this. There may be times when a believer who is struggling with some secret sin should seek out another believer, a close, trusted friend, preferably someone who is more mature in the faith than they are, a friend of the same sex, and then confide in him or her. You know, confess the sin you're struggling with for accountability's sake and so that together in prayer you can bear one another's burdens and pray through to the place of deliverance and cleansing and healing. But that's not what James is speaking about here. We confess private sins privately in a one-on-one situation. And so if we sin against someone else, We confess it first to God and then to the person or persons we have wronged or offended. And quite honestly, sometimes we're willing to tell someone else a sin we committed as a way of avoiding having to confess to the person we sinned against face to face. But what good is it to confess your sin against Mike simply by telling Bob about it? Right? Because all that does is enable you to confess without also repenting and asking for forgiveness from the person you sinned against. And those who have sinned against a brother or sister are to privately confess their sin to the one they have offended and to seek their forgiveness and reconciliation just as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. And then when it comes to public sins, we confess public sins which offend many publicly. 
So if your sin has affected the whole church, then it must be confessed publicly. If that's the case, you ask the elders for an appropriate time and place to confess it before the church. That's happened one time in the life of this church. An individual did things that not only affected uh, individuals in the church, but the entire church. And by the grace and mercy of God, that individual stood in front of the church. After he had uh, confessed his sin and sought forgiveness from the individuals, he stood in front of the entire church and confessed what he had done. That's the way it's supposed to happen, but rarely does. As I said, it's happened one time in the life of this church. So James is not requiring every believer to publicly confess his sins to the entire church. And there may be instances where uh, this is required, but we know from texts like Matthew 18 that sin is best best dealt with privately. Again, as as Wearsby said, our sin, uh, our confession should be as wide as, or we must never confess beyond the circle of that sin's influence. But the area of confession that James seems to be referring to uh, is the result of unconfessed sin related to relationships. You know, sin against a brother or sister in the body of Christ. So the one who has sinned must go to that person privately, or if they're, they're ill... And and unable to, then they should call the person and and have the person come and see them. But they need to see the person face to face, privately, and confess in what way he or she has done wrong. Ask to be forgiven. Because the biblical principle is consistently that confession is due to the party who has been offended. And the one who who has been offended is to forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven them. And one more thing, it is terribly inconsistent and presumptuous of us to continue in unrepentant sin all the while asking God to heal our bodies. I mean, it's as if we're saying, God, I'm enjoying my sexual immorality too much to give it up, but while I've got your attention, would you heal this deep pain in my back? Or Lord, I genuinely resent Uh, this person, and I intend to continue to hold resentment in my heart, but since you're merciful, would you heal me of diabetes? And James is acknowledging that God sometimes withholds his healing mercy because of sin, unconfessed sin. Sin here, specifically, against another brother or sister. And when the sick don't get healed, it may possibly be a result of stubbornness and spiritual insensitivity more than God doesn't do this sort of thing anymore. And so simply put, we should never expect that God will heal us while we hypocritically are nurturing sin in our hearts and minds without sensing any need to confess our sins or to turn from them. And so the first step to healing is confession and reconciliation. And this perhaps is the reason that Jesus first forgave the paralytic of his sins and then healed him. You know, those who were healed were instructed to sin no more. But James is not saying that confession heals us. That that needs to be clear in our minds. He's not saying that confession heals us, but that 
we are healed through prayer. And that is why after confessing your sins, he adds, pray for one another that you may be healed. And you'll notice this has moved now from the specific case of seriously ill believers calling for the elders to pray over over them and anoint them with oil to now the entire church being involved regularly in mutual confession and prayer. And so this means you must never think that you're excused from praying for the sick simply because you're not an elder. The word translated one another is all-inclusive. Everyone in the body of Christ has the privilege and the responsibility to pray for one another. I mean, it isn't just the elders who are responsible to pray for the sick. The entire body of Christ, men and women, young and old, are instructed to pray for one another so that you, the people of the local church, may be healed. And in view of the context, be healed primarily speaks of physical healing and restoration. But again, we can also make a broader application to the spiritual healing of the soul. As one man said, the beauty of Christian fellowship comes to expression in the practice of mutual prayer after sins have been confessed and forgiven. The offender and the offended pray on behalf of each other. Together they find spiritual strength and comfort in the Lord. In their prayers, they visibly and audibly demonstrate reciprocity. The forgiven sinner prays for the spiritual welfare of his fellow believer, who in turn commends him to the mercies of God. Therefore, James said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the question for us this morning is, Do you practice what James has commanded for the church? And when you are ill, do you examine your life in light of God's word to see if sin could perhaps be the cause of your illness? That perhaps you might be under God's fatherly discipline or chastening? And when you offend or sin against another brother or sister, Do you go and confess your sin? You know, agreeing with God's assessment of it before the one you've sinned against? Seeking their forgiveness? And do you join others in the body in praying for one another for both physical and and spiritual needs? In the last part of verse 16, we see that James expects the prayers of the people of God to be effective. Look at verse, the last part of verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power, literally is very strong as it is working or in its effect. The word for prayer which James uses here is not the general Greek word for prayer, but rather a word that focuses on the needs that we bring before the Lord. This word comes from a root word meaning to make known one's particular need. And so if I came to you and I said, I want to tell you about a need I have, this is the word that would describe that conversation. And sometimes this word is translated in the Bible as supplication. It's the idea of a plea, a a petition, an appeal, a, a cry from the heart. 
And it puts the emphasis on, on, the, on the sense of specific need. And, and it also has a, a feeling of urgency and importance about it. But primarily, it's just the making of the need known, a supplication. One, in fact, one commentator even translated it as the beggings of a righteous man. And it's referring to a prayer request, to a prayer need. And so we could accurately translate this verse by saying, the prayer we pray in which we bring our needs before the Lord has great power as it's working. Well, what is it that, that gives the prayer great power as it's working? Well, it's not praying in, you know, the king's English, you know, speaking like a Puritan or using any other, you know, special religious language that makes prayer powerful. That has nothing to do with it. It's not praying long that makes prayer powerful. And although we do read of people spending nights and days in prayer, most of the prayers recorded in the Bible are not long at all. In fact, most of them are are fairly brief. Peter's, Lord, save me, couldn't have been more brief or more effective. The tax collector could only cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was brief, but he was saved as a result. And even the the greatest, most magnificent, glorious prayer in the Bible, Jesus' prayer in John 17, I mean, that only takes a few minutes to read. And the point is simply that the length of the prayer is not the most important thing. That's not what makes it powerful. The frequency of prayer is not the all-important thing. I mean, we are certainly told to pray without ceasing, but the meaning is clearly not that we should never do anything else, right? Alongside that command, we have to put the words of Jesus, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, Matthew 6. So a multitude of words doesn't make prayer powerful and effective of guaranteed blessing. It's also not the number of people praying that makes prayer powerful as it's working. The word prayer... Here is singular, not plural. And so is the word person, also translated man. James is not suggesting that the more people we recruit to pray, the more powerful and effective the prayer will be. And James is saying that one prayer prayed by one person can be exceedingly powerful. I mean, it's not confession that accomplishes great things so that the more we confess, the the more miracles God will perform on our behalf. It's not the number of people that pray as though the number of people praying moves God. But in saying that, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I certainly believe that we should persevere in prayer until God has made his answer clear to us. I believe that it's good for many believers to join in prayer. In fact, the entire church is instructed to pray here in our text. But I strongly disagree with the idea that says or implies that the number of prayers offered or the number of those praying is what moves God. Listen, God delights in the prayers of his people, but prayer is not a work of man that moves God to action merely because of the volume or intensity of our efforts. 
As one man said, we do not need a moral majority to move God. We do not need to amass sufficient prayer power to see God's hand work. Let's not think that God is moved by mere numbers. And that's exactly right. May one elderly widow praying privately in her prayer closet may effectively bring about great intervention from God. It has happened in the past. And so the language we use, the length of our prayers, the frequency of our prayers, the number of people praying is not what makes prayer have great power as it's working. Then what does? Notice James did not say the prayer of the spiritual elite. He didn't say the the prayers or the prayer of the giants of the faith or the super saints has great power as it's working. He said the prayer of a what? Righteous person has great power as it is working. James says prayer that is very powerful in its working or in its effect is the prayer offered by a righteous person. And this is vitally important. Why? Because God does not receive the prayers of the unrighteous. Does he hear the prayers of the unsaved person? Well, of course, he hears everything. He knows what they're saying, but he doesn't receive them, doesn't honor them, and doesn't answer those prayers. As one man said, sin breaks communion with God, and he owes the sinner punishment, not favor. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But that word righteous is is kind of daunting. Because it seems to rule out you and I and our poor little prayers. And of course, if by righteous, James means to be perfect in moral character and integrity, it absolutely would rule all of us out. But that's not what James means. Well, then what does he mean? Well... In one sense, all Christians are righteous before God. Because if we have been justified by faith, we stand before God with a righteousness that is not our own. And if you think that you can approach God in your own righteousness, then you do not have an understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel declares that all are under sin. And that our own righteousness will never satisfy God's holy justice. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified is to be declared righteous. And God does not do that on the basis of any merit in us, but only by grace or his undeserved favor. It is his gift to forgive all our sins and then to clothe us with Christ's perfect righteousness. That is the standing or the position that uh, everyone who is trusted in Christ alone for salvation has. So righteous refers to our standing in Christ, in him, in Christ. God sees us right now as perfectly righteous, though practically we are not. And being righteous has a practical side. 
Practical righteousness refers to visible, godly behavior in our walk, in our daily conduct. It doesn't imply perfection or or no one could qualify. But it means to walk uprightly before God judging and confessing all known sin and and seeking by the grace and strength that he supplies to obey God in every area of our life. And so the righteous man or person is simply the believer who is righteous by virtue of having been redeemed in Christ and then practically is seeking to live his life in obedience to the word of God, sincerely seeking to do God's will. And that certainly fits what James has been saying all along in this letter. And he has been arguing for a living faith, a faith that acts, a faith that works, you know, a belief that behaves, a faith that manifests itself in what we do and what we say, in the wisdom we possess and practice, and in a vital relationship with God through prayer and all the experiences of life. And that's the kind of prayer. That's the the person whose prayers have great power as they are working. They accomplish much because this person is righteous because they walk with God. They seek God's will. They pray in a manner that is acceptable to God. Uh, The man who is living in in an obedient life, the woman who is living an obedient life, pray prayers that are effective because they're in harmony with God's will. Their life is, their thinking is, and therefore their prayer life is as well. And so James wants to make it very clear that prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands even of the humblest, weakest believer. It doesn't require a super saint to wield it effectively. The prayer of a godly Christian, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And the word translated here as working uh, is almost always used of God at work. And to give just one example, Paul writes of the gospel as the word of God which effectively works in you who believe. And applying the same truth to the matter of prayer, James is telling us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective because it is God who works through their prayer. The prayer of of the righteous is as powerful as the God to whom we pray. And so as Ian Bounds puts it, prayer can do anything that God can do. As one man said, prayer has divided seas, rolled up rivers, made flinty rocks gush into fountains, quenched flames of fire, muzzled lions, disarmed vipers and poisons, marshaled the stars against the wicked, stopped the course of the moon, arrested the sun in its rapid race, burst open iron gates, released souls from eternity, conquered the strongest devils, commanded legions of angels down from heaven. Prayer has bridled and changed the raging passions of man and routed and destroyed vast armies of proud, daring, blustering atheists. Prayer has brought one man from the bottom of the sea and carried another in a chariot of fire to heaven. What has prayer, he said, not done? Prayer works. Or more accurately, we should say God works through prayer. Prayer is one of the means of grace which God uses to bring about his sovereign purposes in the world. And we often hesitate to pray because uh, we think it, it just won't do any good. 
But James calls our attention to the fact that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Let me ask you something. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I mean, we're accustomed to neglecting prayer that we're so accustomed to neglecting prayer. But it's hard for us to think of its power through God working among us. And we struggle at this point because we've experienced so many unanswered prayers. And I've prayed for healing for many sick people that have died. I've prayed for repentance for many sinning Christians, and yet they they just have gone on in their sin. I've prayed for salvation for some for many years, and yet they've not come to faith in Christ. But there are times when God delays the answers. And I think one reason he does so is to keep us seeking him or for other reasons that we may not understand. Sometimes God answers no for his own inscrutable reasons. And so this is where we have to trust him in his omniscient ways. God knows all the facts which we will never know. And I pray many, times, many things that seem to me to be for God's glory and in accordance with his will, but he doesn't answer my prayers because of his own sovereign purposes. But when we encounter God's delays or God's denials, you know, God's no to our request, the danger is that we'll lose heart and and give up praying or neglect prayer or see it as a, a last resort. You see, the thing we need to remember is that prayer links us with the omnipotent God who spoke the universe into existence. And he can interrupt the normal laws of his creation if he chooses to accomplish his will. There's nothing he can't do to accomplish his will. And we need to remember that normally God has chosen to accomplish his will through the prayers of his people. And so we should pray. And we should expect God to accomplish much through them according to his will to bring about his divine purpose and for his glory. But if we choose to live unrighteously, you know, by willfully resisting God's will, uh, selfishly refusing to repent or confess of our sins, you know, uh, we shouldn't expect that our prayers will ever accomplish much. And we saw this in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But if we humbly acknowledge our sins, and seek by God's grace to live in accordance with his revealed will. Loved ones, there is simply no limit to what God will do for us in response to our prayers. I mean, never forget there is great power in and through prayer because we pray to an omnipotent, almighty God. 
And so James states that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You know, do we doubt this statement? Well, James has the answer for us. James brings his discussion on prayer to a conclusion in verses 17 and 18 with an Old Testament example of a righteous man whose prayer was powerful and effective. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Now, as you're aware, Elijah had almost legendary status among the Jews in James' day. In fact, next to Moses, he was probably the most highly revered historical person among first century Jews. He's highly revered today among the Jews. And by all accounts, he was an extremely impressive man. You know, he marched in before the, the wicked, powerful King Ahab and announced that it would only rain by his word, and his word came true. He was miraculously fed by ravens during the drought. He miraculously enabled the widow of Zarephath's flower to be replenished throughout the drought. He raised her son from the dead. He called down fire from heaven to consume his waterlogged sacrifice in front of the 400 prophets of Baal. Then he ordered the execution of them all. Later, he called down fire to consume two groups of soldiers sent to arrest them. He parted the Jordan River to walk across. And his final act was to be taken up to heaven without dying by a whirlwind. I know many people think it was a fiery chariot, but read the text. He was taken up by a whirlwind. But most of all, however, he was looked for as the helper in the time of need whose coming was going to pave the way for the messianic age. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that legends are made of. And so a man like Elijah could be more of a hindrance to our prayer life than an encouragement because we think, well, man, this, hey, this guy is in a totally different league than we are. You see, we love to have our heroes. You know, in Christian circles, we tend to praise the great men and, and women uh, of the church and put them on a pedestal. But as Paul Washer said, we need to understand there are no great men and women of God. Only weak and sinful servants of a great and mighty God. But we love to have our heroes, and, and we, we, we tend to praise them and, and put them on a pedestal, thinking that by doing so, then we are, uh, you know, perhaps released from the responsibility of emulating them. You know, they're different. We're not like them. They're, they're in a whole other category. Well, that may be our excuse, but James will have none of it. Because Elijah was no superhero. That's why James says, look back at verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like what? Ours. Ours. Yes, Elijah was a righteous and a faithful man. But he certainly was not a perfect man, as as any study of his life will make very clear. He was a man of like passions, a man just like us, with a nature like ours. That's that's stressing his humanity. Elijah had physical limitations. He was subject to the same feelings, experiences, the same weaknesses of other men. He experienced great discouragement and fear in his conflict with Jezebel. In fact, he ran away in fear 
despaired of life, became depressed. He prayed to resign from his ministry and from life itself. But God rejected his prayer and basically told him to get back to work. Elijah didn't have a privileged status before God that we lack. He had his ups and downs. He was a sinner like us with his own failings. And like us, he served from a position of weakness. He felt the world's powers come against him. I mean, he wasn't worthy. He was simply a righteous man who prayed for individuals and for his society. But the point is, he prayed. He prayed. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed fervently. But that translation is not the best. That's not the best way to understand what James means or or the meaning of, of the actual word. Because the Greek says literally, with prayer, he prayed. With prayer, he prayed. And the meaning is not his fervency, nor even his frequency of prayer, but that he just prayed. He just prayed, that and and nothing more. As one man said, not that Elijah put up a particularly fervent prayer, but that praying was precisely what he did. And as a result of the prayer of Elijah, it didn't rain on the earth probably referring strictly to the land of Israel, didn't reign in Israel for for three years and six months. Have you ever heard the phrase, praying up a storm? It comes from this story about Elijah. Now, the Old Testament doesn't record the prayer of Elijah on this occasion, just the announcement of the drought in 1 Kings 17.1. And the Old Testament does not record the exact length of the drought, but it is mentioned twice in the New Testament. In Luke 4.25, Jesus mentioned the same length of time that James mentions here. And so James presents Elijah as an example of a righteous man who prayed. And his prayer was effective. And we might be inclined to write off Elijah as an example because of his prophetic status, but James says not so. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And yet through his prayer, the Lord did mighty things. And in verse 18, we read, Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So again, as a result of Elijah's prayer, the drought came to an end. And James' point is is simply, and it's clear, that God answers prayer when righteous men pray. And of course, we know that that's qualified by pray according to his will. And Elijah illustrates how effective the prayer of the righteous can be. But it's important to point out that the effectiveness of prayer is not in the prayer itself, or in the anointing oil, in the case of the serious ill, or or in the man himself, as though, you know, some were of a different nature or position than others, but in the God who has chosen to accomplish his will through the prayers of his faithful and obedient children. 
It is the power of God that heals disease and changes the world as he graciously condescends to use our prayer as the mean through which he brings the changes that he desires. And look, if, if the prayers of Elijah, a man of like passions with us, a man who shared the same weakness and frailties as us, If the prayers of Elijah, a man like us, can be used of God to control the very forces of nature, then surely God is well pleased to use our prayers to heal our bodies and to fulfill our daily needs. Don't you think so? So in this section on prayer, that's run from verse 13 through 18. James' point is is very clear. We should turn to God in all of life's experiences. I mean, in every circumstance, in suffering, cheerfulness, or sickness, we're to go to God in prayer. I mean, there's no situation in which prayer is not the proper response for the believer and in which the example of Elijah who just prayed would not be appropriate. And James doesn't actually pause after verse 18 uh, to call us to become people of prayer. But I think it's safe to say the call is implicit and, and clear. I mean, as believers, we should be men and women of prayer because a true faith manifests itself in a vital relationship with God through prayer and all the experiences of life. And the secret to Elijah's praying was not that he was a superman. The secret was that he prayed. He prayed. And so no matter what life brings our way, let's make sure that we do not forget to pray. Not as a last resort, but as our first response. I mean, the situation may be such where it can only be, Lord, help now, and then you've got to get out of wherever it is you're at. But our first response should be to pray. And so the question for us this morning is, are we a praying people? Are we a praying people? I don't mean do you pray for your meals, and I hope you do that. We should thank God for every blessing of his. Are we a praying people? Because the great power of prayer for accomplishing the purposes of God is only operative when we pray. And so we can expect Satan to work in devious and deceitful ways to keep us and and all of God's people from prayer. Why is it you think that when you go to have a, a time of prayer at home, it seems like everything, every kind of interruption possible begins to happen. Satan wants us to do anything but pray. Because he understands that even the weakest saint on his knees is a powerful spiritual force. As one man said, through prayer, the believer habitually lays hold of God's power for victory amid all the diverse experiences of life. So, loved ones, we need to be diligent in prayer. 
we need to devote ourselves to prayer. And as we read in Luke 18.1, we ought always to pray and what? Not lose heart. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. And, you know, if you, uh, you don't have to look around at what's going on in our state, our nation, and the world uh, very long, uh, uh, you know, and not get disturbed and not lose heart. So, yeah, we need to be informed. We need to know what's going on. We need to be understanding of the times we live in, but we can't take our eyes off God. And we ought always to pray so we don't lose heart. Amen? May God work these things in our hearts for his glory. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.